invite you this morning, if you have God's Word, to turn with me to Psalm 110. To Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And we will read the entirety of the psalm. It's a rather short psalm, so we will read the entirety of it this morning in our worship. So hear the word of the Lord. It is a psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. We trust God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts this morning. So let's have a word of prayer before we turn to the sermon this Lord's Day morning. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the songs of Zion that we have been able to sing. God, we've been able to sing and extol our great King and Head of the Church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we pray, Lord, that we might know, God, something of His sovereign majesty today. That, God, that You would help us to get a glimpse of Christ. God, just one glimpse of Him can heal all our heart's woes today. And so, God, we pray that we might see Him in His high and exalted position as Isaiah saw him in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Lord, we pray that we would have such a vision, such an insight into the one who sits upon the throne today, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So God, I pray at this moment that you would forgive us of our sin, forgive us of our debt. God, we owe so much to thee, O God. God, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have our eyes fixed upon him. God, we pray for that anointing that does not make preaching easy, but makes preaching effective. That, God, that you would minister the hearts of people. And I pray that my preaching and my teaching would not be with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, that this church's faith would not stand in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of God. Now, God, as we move into this service of worship through the preaching of the Word, we pray that you would allow the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart to be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. We ask it all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. The psalm that I have read to you, you could rightly call it, particularly verse number 1, God's favorite Bible verse. He said, well, Pastor, why would you say that? It is because it is the most quoted verse in the entirety of the New Testament. And my memory serves right. It is either quoted or alluded to at least 27 times 
and the entirety of the New Testament. And so this is a verse that you and I should be paying very close attention to. And if God gives this much attention to this particular verse of the Old Testament, it is something that you and I should give much attention to today. You know, today we live in a world where it is apparent that the radical left, the ungodly, and the apostates are on the advance. This is what we see. It appears that biblical Christianity is being snuffed out in the West. We see freedoms being suppressed in the land of the free, in the home of the brave. We see freedoms on what many people use today. Social media platforms are being eroded. Freedoms to assemble with God's people are being undermined within our country. Secular humanism and science, falsely so-called, are the ideals that are being pushed by the Department of Education. We have leaders today that call good evil and evil good. But also in the church... Liberalism has reemerged with new clothes. They are putting forth the same ideas except they are couched in different terms. The church is being confronted today by so-called social justice activists calling us to denounce white privilege, to stand behind critical race theory and the LGBTQ movements. And the vast majority in mainline Protestantism, they are denying the inerrancy of Scripture. They say that the Bible is not God's infallible, inspired word, that it, it has errors in it, and you can't trust the Bible. There are those that stand in so-called seminaries that still deny the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, justification by faith alone, the resurrection in the second coming. And then the church appears to be headed in the very same direction as the world. And this is where we find ourselves at this moment on the timeline of history. And many people wonder, is there any comfort? Is there any comfort for the Christian in the day and hour in which we live? Are things just progressively going to get worse and worse and worse? And we are just going to hold on. And then Jesus will come and he will just make everything right. Is this what the scripture tells us? The present seems rather bleak. Is there any hope of sovereign intervention? Is there any hope that God will intervene in the madness, in the craziness and the ungodliness of the age in which we live today. Yes, there is great hope. There is a king upon the highest throne of heaven that we read of in verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Our text proclaims a victorious king ruling over all of his enemies. Well, what we may see among the nations and the church appears insurmountable. They are nothing but a drop in the bucket to God. In light of these verses that we have read, our God is victorious. There is no potentate. 
There is no apostate that can overthrow the sovereign might of Almighty God. According to our text, the enemies of the gospel will be ultimately brought underneath its sovereign sway. The Lord Jesus is said to be seated on the right hand of the majesty on high until every enemy is made a footstool for his feet. As Burkhoff said, Christ now rules the destinies of individuals and nations in the interest of his blood-bought church. This is far more comforting a thought than the notion that Jesus is just some refugee on the throne of heaven. No, Jesus is not just some refugee on the throne of heaven. Jesus is actually a king seated upon a literal throne next to the right hand of God who is ruling and reigning from on high. Christ is a majestic king now upon his throne. And in light of this, I want to bring you the message from particularly verses 1 through 3 of this psalm. Message entitled, Christ our King, the Sovereign over Nations and Men. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 1 is the King's authority. And then we will notice secondly, in the latter part of verse 1, down to verse 3, the King's victory. The king's authority and the king's victory. First, I want you to consider with me the king's authority. The king's authority arises from who he is. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. One author said this, that David, the earthly ruler of God's kingdom, acknowledged that his descendant, which would be Christ, would be sovereign over him. And this psalm is actually repeated in the book of Hebrews. And it is actually an announcement of the deity of Christ. The Lord, that is Jehovah. Notice that capital L-O-R-D. That is Jehovah. That is Yahweh. However you want to pronounce the name. That is the divine name of God. I am that I am. The self-existent one says... To my Lord, capital O-R-D, Adonai. Speaking about the Lord Jesus. The one in view here goes well beyond David or Solomon. There's only one who could fulfill the words of the psalm, and it is Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what are the spheres of his authority? What is the sphere of the authority of Christ? My friend, if you can get a hold of what I'm going to present to you today, it will totally change your view of how you view history, how you view what's going on in the world today. You won't sit there and twiddle your thumbs and bite your nails wondering what on earth is God going to do? What is God going to do with this president? What is God going to do in our country? My friend, you will realize that there is a king upon the throne who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. That God is not sitting in heaven wringing His hands and wondering what on earth is He going to do in the world. No, He is sovereign over all things. We want to notice, first of all, in this sphere of His authority, He has universal dominion. Burkhoff defines the kingship of Christ over the universe as this. It is the dominion of the God-man, Jesus Christ, over the universe. His providential and judicial administration of all things in the interest of the church. 
Christ rules the universe for the purpose of advancing His church. Christ rules all things. All things are held together, the Bible says, by the very word of His power. He is a universal sovereign king of the entire world and worlds of our universe. You say, Pastor, is it really true that Christ rules over nations today? Look at the ungodliness that is coming out of this country. And look at the craziness that is coming out of North Korea and how people are bound and we have these dictators. Are you really suggesting that God has authority over these people? Yes. The Bible tells us that all government is appointed by God. Romans 13 and verse 1. The Bible makes it very clear that every government is appointed by God. They are also held and controlled by God. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whithersoever he will. I want you to look with me in Daniel chapter 4. God is in control of those in positions of authority and power. In Daniel 4, in verse number 28, you well remember the man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was something. And God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, and he told them that he was going to humble him. In Daniel 4, in verse 28, the scripture says, All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. In the end of twelve months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon... And the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Notice this is a sovereign intervention. Here is God sovereignly intervening in the life of those in positions of authority and power the voice says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will." You know who appoints men to office ultimately? It's God. And God can humble men in positions of leadership today, just as he did in Nebuchadnezzar's day, that they might know that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. The same hour, verse 33, was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. And he did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. And at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will, and the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand.
and say unto him, What doest thou? Here is a man that has been humbled by the sovereign king of glory to recognize that there is one who has greater authority than him. And when men of this earth rise up and they think that they are something and they walk into their kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar did and say, look what my hand has made. God has the power to humble them and put them in the very dust that they might recognize that the Most High rules among the kingdoms of men. He is sovereign over all nations. We see this in the life of Daniel, in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. We also recognize as it regards the nations that they are promised reward to our king. Look with me in Psalm 2. Turn back there with me in Psalm 2. Here is a great messianic psalm, Psalm 2. And here the nations are actually promised as a reward to our king. And this is, if you're on the mission field or you're just part of a church like we are here today, this is a great verse for you and I to claim. Because it is a verse that Jesus claims on our behalf today. Psalm 2 verse 8. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Well, how is the Son of Man, how is Jesus going to gain the nations? Here's God speaking to the Son in this Messianic Psalm. And God says to the Son, Ask of me and I will give you the nations. Now I want to ask you, did Jesus forget to ask the Father for the nations? No. How is Jesus going to gain the nations? Well, notice what he says in verse 9. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces with a potter's vessel. Now, in our next point, I'm not going to deal with it now, but we will in the future. We will deal with what is this rod of iron. What is this rod, this sword that is spoken of by which Jesus will subdue the nations to himself? But just see it there, that the Son of Man will gain the nations by means of this rod, subduing the nations to himself. We read in Matthew 28, in verse 18 through 20, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, and if you've ever been around anyone that is ready to depart that's ready to leave this world, you know that the last things that they say are very important. And before Jesus will leave his disciples, he says to them in Matthew 28 and verse 18, All power is given unto me, all authority or all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore... Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus said on the basis of the authority, on the basis of the power that I execute as your king, both in heaven and on earth, you can go and win the nations. 
because of the power that I have given to you. The Great Commission is not a great commission to do and accomplish failure. Jesus did not give us the commission as a means of failing. The Great Commission was a command given by the sovereign King of the universe that you and I can go into the world and actually see what Jesus promised fulfilled. The nations becoming Christianized, the expanse of the gospel, and that is based upon the authority and the power of Christ who is King in heaven. And also taught us to pray in the great Lord's Prayer, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What goes on in heaven will one day come down to earth. And God says what's going on there, He wants to see it happening here. All nations worshiping Him. The question is, how is He going to do that? Well, we're going to get to that in the next few moments. The Bible makes it very clear that the nations are the promised reward of our King. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All nations will submit to the royal authority and kingship of Christ. And this kingship of Christ over the nations will continue until the very last enemy is placed beneath his feet, which is death. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 through 28, that the day is coming. On that great day at the resurrection, it says, well, let's just turn there so you can see it in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Let's back up to verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ it is coming. Then notice verse 24, then cometh the end. So directly connected with the second coming of Christ and the resurrection, these events take place at the same moment. Also at the same moment comes the end. The end of what? The end of this age. Then comes the end when he that is Christ shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which should put all things under him. When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him that put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. At the end of the age, Jesus Christ right now is currently subduing the nations to Himself. He is reigning until every enemy is placed underneath His feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And at His second coming He will deliver over the kingdom to the Father. And this is the end of this national kingdom. This is the universal kingdom. And Berghoff rightly said that he will return his commission to God, that God may be all in all, that the purpose is accomplished, mankind is redeemed, thereby the original kingship of man is restored. 
So in light of these biblical truths, we need to see that our current circumstances will not last forever. They cannot last forever. Because the Bible very clearly says that Jesus Christ is reigning in heaven, seated under the Father's right hand, and He will there sit in a place of authority until every enemy is placed beneath His feet. So Jesus Christ, when He returns, He is coming to an earth that has seen the expanse of the gospel, and then He will deliver over this kingdom to the Father. Christ in His time will bring our nation and all other nations under the sway of the gospel. And today the future is not bleak. But I love what Adoniram Judson said, that great Baptist missionary in the 1800s. Adoniram Judson said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. That's something we must keep in mind. These are promises in God's Word. And while we might look bleak, Am I look hopeless in the day and hour in which we are living? Can I remind you that we do not live in light of the news headlines? We are not to live in light of what we hear on the radio. My friend, we live in light of the Word of God. And God's Word said these are things that must surely come to pass. And God said that He will subdue the nations to Himself. So surely our future is as bright as the promises of God. We have considered the, His universal dominion over the kingdoms of this world. But He also operates not only with a universal dominion, but a spiritual dominion. This speaks specifically of Christ's reign over His people, the church. It is a spiritual kingdom because it is administered not by force or external means, but by the Word and Spirit. It is a spiritual kingdom over which Christ reigns today. Now this is opposed by some. They say that He is the head of the church. There are those that will say, well, Jesus is head of the church, but He is not king of the church. One day, they say, when Jesus returns, then He'll be king. My friend, that is not right. The Bible makes it very clear that He is king now. Jesus is seated upon a throne. I don't know of anyone that sits upon a throne that's not a king. Jesus is very much king today. And there He is seated. And they say, well, when He returns, then He will be king. They deny the present kingship entirely of Christ. Some expect that there will be some literal earthly kingdom of Christ as was maintained in the Old Testament. And with the coming of this new dispensation or administration, all the Old Testament shadows passed away. And among them the idea of a theocratic kingdom. There was this Old Testament shadow of the very sacrifices that were offered in the temple, and you had the theocratic kingdom of Israel. But all these were types and shadows that pointed to something far greater. One author said that out of the womb of Israel, the spiritual reality of the kingdom came forth and assumed an existence independent of Old Testament theocracy. The spiritual aspect of the kingdom is therefore more clearly seen in the New Testament than the Old Testament. And the scriptures clearly teach that the kingdom to be expected is not an external and physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Look with me in 
Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. And this really sums up what Israel was looking for in their day. In Luke 17 and verse number 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. So they're, they're asking him, Lord, when is this kingdom going to come? What was Israel expecting? They were expecting this Messiah to come and power and great might and authority and that he would overthrow the Roman Empire and that he would erect his throne within the very temple there in Jerusalem and that he would rule from Jerusalem with a literal rod of iron and submit the nations to himself in that fashion and be king over all the earth. That is what they were expecting. Lord, when will this kingdom come? The Pharisees asked. He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Now that is significant. And the idea, if you have a margin, observation also says outward show. He goes on to further explain what he means by that. He said, Neither shall they say, Lo there, or lo here, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus was teaching that the kingdom that he was coming to establish was not one that you would see with your eyes in Jerusalem, with some king upon a throne, royal subjects. He said, The kingdom of God does not come with outward observation. He said, you won't be able to say, there it is over there. Or go over there and then you'll see the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of God is within you. It's a spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to establish. Jesus further emphasized this in John 18. Turn there with me. In John 18 and verse 36, where he is there before Pilate. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus said very clearly, My kingdom is not of this world. He said, If my kingdom was a kingdom that was to be of this world, then people would be retaliating against you, taking up arms to come against you. He said, But the kingdom that I have come to establish is a spiritual kingdom. We don't have time to look at the verses in Daniel. I've done that in the past with you. But if you look at Daniel 2 and Daniel 4, Daniel made it very clear that in the days of the four great kingdoms that would arise, there would arise another kingdom that would crush and destroy all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, he established a spiritual kingdom in the midst of these physical kingdoms that one day will consume the entirety of the kingdoms of this world. And the Bible said that the kingdom that this Messiah would establish, according to Daniel, would be like a great mountain, like a little stone that rolls off the mountain and becomes a great mountain and fills the entirety of the earth. This is speaking about the advance. This is speaking about the, the advance of the gospel and the advance of this kingdom that this Messiah would establish. The question is, how do you and I enter it? Since there's not going to be a physical kingdom, and there's not going to be literal gates that we walk through to enter into this kingdom, how do you and I enter this spiritual kingdom? 
Jesus told us how in John 3, in verse 3. I want you to turn there with me since you're in John. Look with me in John 3, in verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 3 makes it very clear that a man must be born again. He must be sovereignly regenerated. He must have a work of God performed in his heart. The word born again not only means to be born again from within, but it carries the idea of being born from above. It is a supernatural, sovereign work of God that is performed. There is only one way to enter into this spiritual kingdom. And there is nothing that you can do to enter it by yourself. No amount of good works, no amount of baptisms can do it, your church membership can do it, knowing who the preacher is, knowing where he lives, shaking his hand, signing a card, none of that will do. The only thing that will do is you must be born again. You must be born again. There must be a sovereign work wrought in your heart. There must be a love for Christ that has been placed within you, deposited into your very soul from heaven. It comes down from heaven and it is deposited into your very life. You become a new creature in Christ. This is how this kingdom is entered. And this was a kingdom already present in the lives of Christ and the apostles, not awaiting some future arrival. You know, some people have the idea that the kingdom's out yonder somewhere. And that when Jesus returns, then he will establish the kingdom. My friend, you have not understood what Jesus taught about the kingdom, about it being a spiritual kingdom. You won't be able to say, there it is, or there it is. It's within you. It was a spiritual kingdom that he came to establish. Jesus taught in Matthew 12 and verse 28. He said, if I by the finger of God cast out devils, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I want to ask you a question. Did Jesus, by the power of God, cast out devils? He did. Then if that be true, then the kingdom of God had come upon them. The kingdom of God was there presently when Jesus was casting out those devils. In Luke 17, 21, we had already looked at that verse. You won't be able to see, say, lo here or lo there, for lo, the kingdom of God is within you. Colossians 1 and verse 13. Here is an apostolic reference to the idea that the kingdom was there in their own time. In Colossians 1 13, who had delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. This is a spiritual kingdom that you and I are a part of. That we have entered in by sovereign regeneration by the work of the Spirit of God. The question now must be asked regarding this spiritual kingdom, how long will this spiritual kingdom last? This spiritual kingship of Christ shall endure forever. Just as Christ's priesthood is eternal, so is His mediatorial kingship. It lasts forever. Scripture clearly teaches the eternality of the spiritual kingship of Jesus Christ. Look with me in Psalm 45, if you turn back there with me to Psalm 45. 
Psalm 45 and verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. This is quoted in the book of Hebrews and is referring to Jesus Christ. It's a great verse to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. And God is saying to the Son that your throne is forever. What throne is this? It is His spiritual throne of His people that He will sit upon forever and forever. Turn over to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, you see this repeated. In Psalm 89, in verse 36, His seed shall endure forever, and His throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as the faithful witness in heaven. This is speaking about the eternality of His throne. Isaiah 9 and verse number 7 speaks about the government being placed upon His shoulders and that He will rule forever. Daniel 2.44, the similar language. 2 Samuel 7 speaks about the great Davidic covenant. And it said, uh, God said to David regarding that great Davidic covenant that I will be your God forever and there will never cease to be a man to sit upon your throne. Luke 1.33, that Jesus will be seated upon the throne of his father David and his throne will be forever. This spiritual kingdom advances as Christ's dominion over the nations advances. The promise of spiritual growth is promised in the Word of God. So again, do not be guided by these current circumstances, but rather be guided by Holy Scripture. It's so easy to be distracted as we look at the world around us and we begin to lose hope in what God has said in His Word. We begin to doubt His promises and we just want to be like those who hold on till Jesus come without realizing that we have a King in Heaven that is going to subdue the nations to Himself. The one seated at the right hand has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we have no reason to question his sovereign power over the nations and over the church. So I want you to now turn back with me to Psalm 110. We've considered the one that is seated in a place of authority, the king's authority. He has a position of universal dominion and spiritual dominion. But now I want you to see the king's victory. How is it that Jesus Christ will make his enemies his footstool? Notice that in verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord, now this is, he's explaining how he's going to make his enemies his footstool. He said, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. So how is it that the king will make his enemies his footstool? How will he achieve victory over the nations? Scripture makes it very clear that our Lord will not return until. Now until is a timing word. The Lord will not return until His enemies become His footstool. The second coming is directly connected with His reigning. And victory over the nations will come through the powerful proclamation of the gospel. Now I'm going to prove that to you from the Word of God. Notice what he says in verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength 
out of Zion. What is this rod a reference to? I want to look at a few passages to show you that this is ultimately referring to the gospel. It's ultimately referring to this powerful dynamite message. Look with me in Isaiah 11. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you know that Isaiah 11 is a kingdom chapter. And Isaiah 11, and look with me in verse 1. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Scripture says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now this is a great prophetic passage. I wish I had time to deal with it. But we see here in 11.1, this clearly has to be a reference to the, uh, to many associate this with the baptism of Christ, the being anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. The Spirit of God resting upon Him. Wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and shall make Him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And He shall not judge after the sight of His eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of His ears. But with righteousness shall He judge the poor, and reprove with equity the meek of the earth. Notice this, and He shall smite the earth with the rod of His mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So here we have in verse number 1, the rod is a reference to Christ. But how is it that Christ is going to expand his kingdom? Well, according to verse 4, he is going to smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So the rod here is not a literal one in which he beats the nations into subjection, but rather a spiritual rod. It is a rod that proceeds out of his mouth. This is a symbol. This is speaking of the gospel message. The way Jesus will submit the nations to himself is by the word of God, by the gospel. This is how he will submit the nations to himself. Is this not how you have been submitted to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ? If the, no one came to you with a literal rod and said, trust Jesus, I'll pumble you to the ground. That is not what man did to you. They came to you with the gospel message. And it was like a rod that proceeded out of their mouth and it broke your spirit and shattered you into a million pieces. And you realize that you are a sinner who needed a Savior. And this is how Christ is going to subdue the nations by the rod that comes out of His mouth. In light of that, I want us to now turn back to Psalm 2. Turn there with me. Because we read that passage and I wanted you to see it in light of what we just considered in Isaiah chapter 11. But in Psalm 2, 8 and 9... Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this is clearly, again, a messianic psalm. But how will the nations be made his possession? Well, verse 9 reveals this to us. Using a very strong physical and visual picture to reveal a spiritual truth. In light of Isaiah 11.4, this must be referring to the rod of his mouth. That is the gospel. The nations and men are to be brought into subjection, not by physical 
or military might. We don't believe like the Muslims in jihad that we are going to conquer people by the physical sword. No. The Christian believes that we conquer by the sword of the Spirit, by the Word of God. You see, the gospel is the most powerful thing on planet Earth. It is far more powerful than any atomic bomb. It is far more powerful than any nuclear device that man knows. The Bible says in Romans 1.16 that it is the gospel that is the power of God, the dunamis, the dynamite power of God unto salvation. You know what will change this world? As I prayed earlier, it's not going to be the politics. It's not going to be who's in the White House, what political party holds sway. That's not the answer. The answer is this, the gospel. That is the answer for this world. This is the answer for nations. This is the answer for our lost loved ones and those that are outside and are in the crazy world that we are in. They need to hear of Christ by the power of the gospel. Also consider with me 2 Thessalonians. Turn there quickly with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we consider the rod, how Christ will subdue the nations to himself. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse number 8. Here he's speaking about the end of time. And he's speaking about the rise of that lawless one, that wicked one, that man of sin, the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.8 And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now that's very interesting language. The Bible says that this Antichrist will be destroyed by the spirit of his mouth. I think if you look at the scriptures we have considered, the rod of his mouth and these various references, that this is what this is referring to. It is speaking about the gospel. How is it that the Antichrist will ultimately be in one way defeated. It is through the preaching of the gospel. Now it's not my intention to deal with who or what that is, other than to say that he is found seated on a throne in Rome somewhere today. But that wicked or that lawless one will be consumed with the spirit of Christ's mouth. Again, using the analogy of faith, this goes back to Isaiah 11.4, the rod of his mouth. And one of the means of defeating Antichrist is the preaching of the gospel. And certainly from the Reformation on, we have seen a pushing back of the darkness. We have seen an advancing of the gospel into parts of the world that never had the gospel. Now the last reference I want you to turn to as it regards uh, the rod is Revelation 19 in our scripture reading that we had considered this morning. In Revelation 19... As you know, uh, the book of Revelation is one of those books that people debate about how it should be interpreted. I just want to say from the get-go, I think the key to the interpretation of this book is found in the very first verse of the book. Where he says that the angel sent and signified these things to the servant John. The word signified there means simply that he sent it in symbols. And so the book of Revelation is symbols. And we know that a symbol is never interpreted literally. A symbol always points to something greater than itself. 
And so you need to keep that in mind as you come to the book of the Revelation. So in Revelation chapter 19, we here have a stunning symbol showing the victory of Christ over all his enemies. Notice how Christ, our reigning king, is said to subdue the nations. Look with me in verse 15. That out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now we have already considered ruling them with a rod of iron. This goes back to Psalm 2. And we had spoken that this is not speaking about a literal rod. But it's a rod that proceeds out of his mouth. It is the power of the gospel. And here you have a reference to a sword now proceeding out of his mouth. That will smite the nations. Also notice verse 21. Of Revelation 19, the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So the sword here is a reference we know to the Word of God that is identified for us in Ephesians 6.17. The sword of the Spirit is the Word. The rod is the gospel. So in verse 15, what is the symbol teaching us? That Christ will bring the nations into submission by the word and the gospel. This is how he will bring the nations and how he will defeat his enemies. By subduing them by the power of the gospel. And this shows that by the word of God and the gospel, Christ will be victorious over nations and men. Now, if you turn back with me to Psalm 110, we see that Christ is seated in a place of authority. He has a place of victory. He will have that authority because of the rod that proceeds out of his mouth. By the power of the gospel, he will rule his enemies. Now, there's something you and I need to understand. You and I are enemies of God by nature. The Bible says we are at enmity with God. We were his enemy. How did Christ as king bring you into his kingdom? Well, you submit it by the word and by the gospel. Those were the instruments that were used to bring you into the kingdom. And this is the instruments that the king wields today. So powerful is this proclamation of the gospel that we read in verse 3 of our text of Psalm 103, that thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Or thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power. In other words, the gospel is proclaimed with such power and comes with such effective working of the Spirit that men happily lay down their arms of rebellion and offer themselves willingly to the Lord. Here the king comes in all his sovereign power to its sinful heart. And as he comes and as the gospel is proclaimed, the man willingly lays down all his arms of rebellion, all the hatred and animosity that he had against Christ. It all of a sudden comes crashing down as he hears the word coupled with the gospel and it is a sword that pierces his very soul. And this is what God uses today. It is a sword of the spirit. It is a divine summons that they cannot resist. And according to our text, God also clothes those who come to him with garments of salvation. Notice in verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness. Now that's an interesting term. In the beauties of holiness. 
In the beauties of holiness, it can be translated various ways. And it can even be rightfully translated in holy attire. That we have been made willing in the day of the power, and now we are in holy attire, because we have now willingly submitted to the gospel. And the people are now in holy attire, not their own. They're rather clothed in garments provided by Christ. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.21, where Adam and Eve sinned. They sought to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And we know that God clothed them in garments of skin. Isaiah 61.10, we know what Isaiah said, He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, and He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Our Excuse me, our text goes on to speak of in verse 3, from the womb of the morning. And this could likely be referring to the new birth, to regeneration. Only ones who have on the garments of salvation are those who have been born again. So it is very easy to look around us, to look at the circumstances and grow discouraged. It is very easy to adopt an attitude of doubt and unbelief that nothing will ever change. And you know, sadly, this was the perspective people had after our recent election. People were twiddling their thumbs or are doubt and unbelief, but God's still on His throne. We still have the promises we've considered here in His Word. Nothing has changed one iota with God. God will see to it that He accomplishes His sovereign purpose. In light of the passage we consider today, there is great gospel hope. The future is as bright as the promises of God. We have a king who has all authority. And this promises and guarantees ultimate victory. As Burkhoff said, your king is not a refugee on the throne, but rather a sovereign of the universe. And every knee will bow to him and declare that he is a Lord to the glory of God the Father. Away with this notion that we are simply just holding on till Jesus comes. He is reigning in heaven until every enemy is placed beneath his feet. And as I said, you are a testimony to that today if you are saved. You have been brought underneath the authority of Christ, underneath the kingship of Christ. And it was not with a physical rod, it was by the word of his mouth, by the power of the gospel. You and I are a testimony to that today. There was a hymn that was recently written and penned I wanted to close with. Just reading you the words. It says, Every power on earth and in heaven is a shadow in his light. No authority, law, or government challenges his sovereign might. His reign and rule have no boundary. All that is his hands have wrought. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. We are well aware we are orphans once, bent and broken in our shame. Then he sought us out and adopted us. Now we bear his royal name. Every sin or crime we have ever done is no match for Jesus' blood. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. We are rescued out of darkest night, free from Satan's evil hold. In the kingdom of our Savior's light is our soul's eternal home. Though the enemy tries to steal and kill, what the death of Christ has bought, nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. 
We the church declare Jesus Christ as King, for He conquered death once for all. We will live in light of His victory, following His gospel call. And when the story ends, we know Jesus wins, for His power cannot be stopped. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. Your Word is truth. Your Word is powerful. And God, I pray that we would lay hold of this truth today, that You are King, that our Savior is seated in a place of authority, ruling the nations, ruling His church, and is subduing this world by the power of the gospel. And as the song says, that nothing ever can and nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. God, we thank you today, the God that even though we live in a sinful world, and though we live in a world of much wickedness where men call good evil and evil good, we thank you, Lord, that you are seated upon your throne, and that God, just as you humbled Nebuchadnezzar, you can humble the wicked hearts of uh, proud men today. And so, God, we commit this all into your hands, and we pray that you would turn the hearts of our leaders. You said you hold their hearts in your hand, and you turn them whithersoever you will. And so, Lord, we pray for our president, our vice president, all our elected officials, the ones that do not know thee, that do not know saving grace, that, God, that you would turn their hearts towards the gospel the God that they would be overwhelmed by the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of the Savior, and that it would pierce their heart, and the God that they would be gloriously converted to Christ. So God, we pray, have your will in your way today. Thank you for this time we've been able to spend together, and we trust that we will know thy presence, Lord, until we meet again. For we ask it all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.